Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. And welcome to another Arsenal Women Arsecast right here on Arsblog.com. I'm joined by Tim Stillman. Uh, Tim, this is mostly your show. I'm just kind of here to guide you or to guide the listeners in the direction of all the interesting information that we have on the show. Can you maybe just give us a brief outline of what we've got coming between now and the end of the podcast? Yeah, certainly. So um, we'll have a little bit of a chat about um, the game uh, on Sunday um, against Liverpool, which Arsenal won for pretty emphatically, uh, which was to be expected. But they've got a really, really tough game coming up this Sunday um, away at Birmingham, which is a real, um, I wouldn't say banana skin because Birmingham are a really, really good team. Um, but it's it's one that's had a little bit of a red ring in the calendar um, for a little while and it will go a long way to deciding uh, when and how they win the title. A um, little bit on the injury situation, which uh, there's there's been like quite a bit of news, uh, kind of good and bad um, over the last few weeks there. And um, yeah, we put a lot of people will have seen we published a really good interview with with Danielle Carter on the site um, this week. She recently came back from um, a cruciate ligament injury and has had a couple of sub appearances. And I caught up with Dan at Liverpool, and um, yeah, we can talk a little bit about that. It's it's really good interview. She's uh, she's great value, is Dan. Um, and yeah, and, and we've also got um, the Guardian's women football correspondent uh, Susie Rack talking through some of the wider issues uh, things like the new Barclays sponsorship deal with the WSL um, we talk a little bit about why Arsenal don't play at the Emirates uh, more often and things like that and just generally about marketing in the women's game Susie's uh, it's, it's a, a subject Susie's very passionate about and she's got lots of uh, lots of lots of good ideas uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting interview all right, cool. Well, we've got all that coming up, but let's talk about this 5-1 win over Liverpool, mm. which has basically put the title within in the hands of the Arsenal women. Mm. Um, an impressive win. I mean, we, we think about Liverpool, obviously. You talk about... I think it's quite uh, curious, anyway, for me to listen to you saying, well, Birmingham City, this is the big... This is the, <laughs> yeah. big, this is the difficult game. And you're thinking, well, Birmingham? Really? Yeah. And we've just beaten Liverpool 5-1, but I suppose that's to do with how long these women's teams have been going and their their stature within the game. Yeah, it's it's quite funny actually because Liverpool um first of all I think it shows you you can have a good women's team if you want one. Birmingham and Reading are, are two really really good teams in the WSL. Um far better teams than the likes of Liverpool, Everton, um West Ham are a bit new so we'll let them off. But um yeah, Liverpool won the league in 2013 and 2014. They they really put some money behind it. And then kind of Man City and Chelsea came along. Arsenal decided um, to keep up with that level of, of expenditure and Liverpool just didn't effectively. And, you know, the, Liverpool have been in a bit of turmoil. They they appointed Neil Redfern. Um, that might be a familiar name to people who remember him playing for Charlton in the 90s. Um, and he managed Leeds as well, actually. Mm. Um, but then he left after one game because, you know, promises weren't kept about funding. Um, Chris Kirkland took over as caretaker manager. Um, and Chris, like there was this story came out about, you know, they, they put, they give the girls like accommodation, um, near the training ground. And there was this story about Chris Kirkland had to go out and buy like beds and furniture for some of the players because the club hadn't done it with his own money. Yeah, with his own money, which he says wow. he got reimbursed from the club. It's just sure. they didn't do it quickly enough. So <laughs> he had to go out and buy beds and sofas. Just imagining Chris Kirkland um, like wandering around IKEA, yeah. getting to the checkouts and going, "Oh fuck!" 
<laughs> like, am I going to get this in the Volvo? <laughs> um, yeah, and and so Liverpool have like really kind of let go of themselves um, in in terms of their women's team. So yeah, Arsenal, Arsenal went there on Sunday uh, to Prenton Park and won pretty convincingly on one of the most horrendous football pitches I've ever seen. Um, really, is it was, that bad? There was honestly down. Uh, uh, one side, uh, the side I was on, actually, there was literally like a trench um, going down it. And um, yeah, I mean, full full disclosure, we, I, I recorded the interview with Dan Carter with the intention of dropping it into this podcast. But we did the interview in the tunnel and where the pitch was so bad, all the players came off with like half of it in their boots. So while I'm talking to Dan, like there's, you know, 15 players like whacking their boots against the tunnel walls. Um, uh, but this is Prenton Park that you're talking about. This yep. is the home of Tranmere Rovers. Yeah. This is not like a park pitch or, or something like that. Tranmere Rovers who are in League Two, a professional yeah. club, a, a hugely established football team. Why is their pitch like this? Yeah, it's it's really weird. I mean, I, I get that we've had quite a bit of dry weather, but honestly, some of the women's teams, you know, who use stadiums like this, so Arsenal are quite fortunate at Boreham Wood because they've got uh, one of those Deso pitches, which is like half plastic, mm. half grass. Um, but yeah, I, honestly, I think a lot of the time they just don't bother to like water it, for example, when there's a women's game on. Um, I'm speculating there, but I I think they just thought, oh, well, it's it's only a women's game. Let's, you know, let's, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I don't think it magically turns into a carpet when Tramway <laughs> play on it, but it, it really needed a sprinkler on it and it clearly hadn't had one. Um, but yeah, such as you know, such as such as kind of life at this level, um, really. But that, but the, the Liverpool win was totally expected, and Arsenal looked. Um, the the results have been there the last few months, but since Jordan Nobbs got injured in November, the mm. performances haven't been as good because she's an exceptional player, and there's not really any replacing her. Um, and we we've got enough to beat most teams, but you know we've lost twice to Chelsea and lost to Man City in that time without her. But the the last couple of games, it it's looked like it's coming together again. But um, yeah, Birmingham on Sunday. I mean, we lost three nil away at Birmingham last season. We've played them twice this season, once in the cups, and and they're just. Um, I I guess I'd compare them to Atletico Madrid in that they're just a horrible team to play. They make you fight tooth and nail for every blade of grass. They're just, they don't rest. They don't leave you alone. Um, And this is, this is just a fixture that's had a big red ring around it because if Arsenal win their next three games, they're champions um, and they avoid what would be a pretty nerve-shredding scenario because they've got Man City at home on the final day. Yikes. And if they drop any points, that basically becomes a playoff for the title. Um, and I think Arsenal really want to avoid that and wrap it up. But but like Birmingham's the one, really. That, that's going to be a tough game to win. Like Arsenal will still be favourites, but not by an awful lot. If they do that, they will win the league. Um, it's as simple as that, really, because the two games they've got afterwards are against teams down the bottom. Um, and, and unless something really, really unusual happens, they'll win those games. So this 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 game against Birmingham on Sunday is huge. Um, but Arsenal do, they look in slightly better shape performance-wise at the moment. It is the kind of uh, result that would give you some confidence going into a game like this at this point of the season when you beat a team 5-1. And you talk about Birmingham and being a very tough team. Arsenal are top of the table with 42 points. Birmingham are in fourth place at 28 points. Um, you know, so there is a substantial difference, even if, uh, you know, your um, perception of what Birmingham are and, and how difficult they might make it for Arsenal, you look at the table and you think, OK, it doesn't look like it should be that difficult, but... Mm, but Birmingham um, Birmingham are one of those weird teams, actually, who are much better against the bigger teams, um, because what it is, is they're really good defensively. They're really organised. They, they fight, they press, and actually they struggle a bit. I wouldn't say struggle, but like when they play teams that are near the bottom, they don't go and beat them five or six nil. It's usually like one or two nil. Um, they, you know, they're not they're not a team that really opens up. Um, but when they're playing like Arsenal or Chelsea, they beat Chelsea um, at home recently as well. They mm. they 
they really give the big teams a game. That's that's kind of their whole thing. And they've got they've got a new manager. Um, their previous manager, Mark Skinner, did a really really good job, and he was tapped up by Orlando Pride. So they got a new manager, and it's their first home game with their new manager. So that's got you know that might give them another like one or two percent as well and and you know these kind of strange things can make a difference so like like i say arsenal should win but nobody would be shocked or surprised if they didn't right so that game is this sunday yeah home or away uh that's away um, right. solly holmore's ground and it's uh it's it's being screened live on the bbc in england so if you're not in england i'm sure you'll find a stream somewhere if you want sure. to Sure, that's amazing isn't it to think that you know you'll be able to find a stream for for an arsenal women game on sunday mm. if you really want to but and the fact that it's on the bbc obviously will help that um i know you've talked to uh susie rack about the the attendance figures mm. for some of the games the the game against it was Atletico Madrid against uh, uh, Barcelona. Barcelona, sixty odd thousand people uh, yeah, yeah. at a game, which is amazing, isn't it? To think yeah. that that kind of support is is going on with those games. So that's something you're going to cover with Susie. I just want to talk uh, very briefly uh, some good news during the week. Katie McCabe uh, has signed a new long-term contract with the club. How important is she to this team and what kind of an impact does she have and what can she do in the years to come? Yeah, she's become a really, really important player this season. It's quite strange. She came from from Shelbourne in Ireland when she was, you know, quite young. I think she's about 20, about four years ago or so. And she was kind of in and out of the team and she showed a bit of promise and, but she was quite inconsistent. And then um, the first half of last season she went on loan to Glasgow City in Scotland and when she came back she just came back a a different player Um, and also kind of in that time uh, Pedro Loza left Arsenal and Joe Montemoro the current coach came in and she's just gone from strength to strength and she went from being a squad player to being like you know quite a trusted rotation option and now she's she's played more minutes than anyone else this season and she's in this kind of band of players who perhaps behind someone more obvious like Vivian Miedema who's just been quietly really really effective and the reason Joe likes Katie McCabe so much is because she can play so many positions and Joe is um, he's a bit like Unai Emery in that no two games will you see the same formation. Even if you see the same players, they will not be set up the same way two games in a row because he sets his team up according to the opposition mm. and their weaknesses. So he yep, he flits between back three and back four. Um, and Katie really fits into that because she can play in central midfield. She can play left back. She can play on the left-hand side. She often plays on the right-hand side as that kind of inverted winger. And, and basically, no matter where he plays her, um, he's just, you know, sometimes when a player and a manager just get each other, yeah, um, and they fit together, and and I think I think that's that's how it is with with Katie and Joe Montemoro, and and that's why she's played so many minutes because she can just no matter what system he wants to play, um, she can she can fit into it somehow. It's also important that she's been fit for the whole season, which puts her in a bit of a minority <laughs> in this squad. So that's another reason she's played a lot of minutes. But she's, you know, she only signed a new deal um, last May. Um, and if she signed another one now, that's that tells you it's a reward. That's basically, I, I don't know this for sure. Sure. But I'm going to, I'm going to bet that's a pay rise as well. That's a kind of, you've been really good. Well done. Here's a reward because she only signed a, a contract last May and uh, she's now the captain of Ireland. Um, and yes, some, something happened when she came back from that loan deal. And I don't know if it was just I, I, I asked her about it not long after she came back and she said, look, I, I realized I had to you know, make some changes to the way I train and you know, my life in general, not just the way I play. And uh, I wonder if she just thought, right, I've been sent out on loan. You know, I, I've got. To, if I want to make it work at Arsenal, I've I've really got to kind of 
I've really got to put in and prove myself. And yeah. and she really has. And she's got a wand of a left foot as well. She's scored quite a few, you know, nice goals from range this season. The injury thing we're going to talk about uh, after you talk to Susie, and maybe at some point, uh, my, my interest in the the Irish influence at the Arsenal women's side mm. is, is something certainly we've got Katie McCabe, Louise Quinn, and Emma Byrne, of course, was yep. a, a mainstay in the Arsenal women's team for, for many, many years. But right now, you're going to talk to Susie Rack, uh, about yep. the new sponsorship deal for the Women's Premier League uh, yep. with Barclays, the attendances and all that stuff. And we'll come back after that and talk more. Joining me now on this Arsenal Women Arsecast is the Guardian's women's football correspondent, Susie Rack. Susie, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, Tim. Thanks for having me. Um, Susie, I wanted to start um, by talking a little bit about Barclays' decision to sponsor the WSL starting from next season. Um, it's the first time a women's league in this country has had this kind of sponsorship or commercial backing. Um, Chelsea manager Emma Hayes was effusive um, about the, the impact this might have. Um, it's, be, it's being described as a bit of a game changer. Do you think that's a, a fair description? Yeah, completely. Um, just a the fact alone uh, that it's over 10 million um, is is huge because it, it's taking uh, sponsorship of women's football from almost being a tokenistic thing, um, solely good for image, to uh, to being taken really seriously uh, as, as, a, as an investment and, and, a, and a brand sticking that much money into it um, shows that you know, they don't expect to make a return on that money, but they expect that... Um, that people will see see their brand on it, um, and that uh, that they will kind of have have the same impact that they've had on the Premier League. Um, you know, even even though the Premier League doesn't have a title sponsor anymore, people still think of it as the Barclays Premier League. I think that that just gives it a kind of massive stamp of authority from one of the one of the biggest brands to be involved in sport. Um, so yeah, it's, it's hugely significant. I mean, not. Like I say, not least on the kind of um, theoretical level like that, but also on the actual, you know, down, when it comes down to it, what that money will actually do to clubs, because it will help the clubs at the bottom end of the table um, to kind of maintain their full-time status, the ones that struggled in particular. And then at the top, it will help the, the clubs looking to compete in Europe, hopefully bridge that gap between themselves and the likes of Leon and Wolfsburg. Um and then you've got the sponsorship of grassroots with the uh, with the schools program, which uh, again shows a commitment to to the pathway, uh, which which is always a good thing. I know um, Kelly Simmons, who's the FA director of the women's professional game. Uh, she's talked a lot in the last year about the importance of getting this kind of commercial backing and. For instance, we saw Visa sign a deal with UEFA um, recently to sponsor UEFA competitions. And it feels like there's been something brewing um, a little bit here with big companies being attracted to women's football. And like you say, it's not you know, just a case of, for want of a better phrase, virtue signalling. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think that the women's game is attractive to these big brands for branding reasons? I think there's the obvious fact that it, it's, uh, it, it does look good it does look good uh, for their image. Um, that you know, the women's game, whether we necessarily like to think of it that way or not, is seen as a bit of a cleaner beast than the men. Um, and I, I think that's a big help, but also that, that it is growing so rapidly. Um, you know, they can see that this that kind of getting in on the ground floor um, will will benefit them kind of further down the line. And, you know, like I say, in the same way that you still think of uh, the Barclays Premier League or the Coca-Cola Cup or whatever it may be, if you get in there first, you're, you're going to be remembered for it. Um, and I think that that's that's a big incentive. But then also the fact that, you know, they're most likely looking at some of the games that have happened in the last week, the Atletico Madrid, the 60,000, the 39,000 at Juventus and thinking that if they get in now, they've, they've, they're, they're onto a winner in the long term commercially as well, that it's not just literally just virtually signaling like you say um, and I think that um, that that is playing a big part of it I mean you look at the um, uh, the TV rights deal for the WSL with BT Sport you know that's not a money making deal at all um, it's uh, you know, it kind of it's, it's base level just covers the cost of production 
plans until 2021. BT are on to winner there because figures are going up for uh, for um, audiences for WSL games and um, and, and they they've got in first and got it on the cheap. So so there's also that aspect to it. You get in first, you get in early with a good deal, and uh, as it grows, you benefit from that. Um, and I think that's what what these big brands are seeing. And Barclays uh, putting in a big chunk of money shows that. They, they, you know, they kind of they they can see its rapid development is only going to continue, which is which is brilliant. I, I, f- I feel like um, whenever one of these kind of uh, landmark moments happens in women's football, we we seem to come to the same discussion, which um, I'd, I'd maybe label the trickle down um, discussion. Um, you know, we had recently the move for the WSL to be fully professional, and some historic clubs kind of fell by the wayside, and we've got. You know, last week Yeovil announced that they're struggling um, to make ends meet. Millwall Lionesses have had to live on kind of GoFundMe's and handouts. It, do you think there's a danger with the Barclays deal that um, we're going to see an even wider gap um, develop between the elite clubs like Arsenal and Chelsea and Manchester City and the rest? I think, yeah, I think that that will definitely happen. But I think the biggest gap will be between the Women's Super League and the Championship, unless they can get a title sponsor for the championship and then certainly um, the National League as well because um, you know if you've, if you've only got the money pouring in at the top there, then it's, go- it's going to take a hit further down a- any team is going to struggle to come up and uh, you know we've got to look at will parachute payments exist and things like that to help the teams that drop down into uh, into the lower tiers too if, you know, if a team that is getting money from the Barclays deal drops into the championship and then ha- doesn't have that money, what is there to support them from from <laughs> from kind of really, really struggling financially with a professional team in a semi-professional league without that extra money? You know, it, it, it's, uh, it could be hugely damaging. Um, it, there's been a lot of casualties along the way to professionalism in the women's game and I think you know, a, lot, a lot of them are very, very sad and, you know, I, I think they're the definitely could have been ways to keep more of them on board um, although I think some pro- probably a little bit inevitable I kind of feel that sort of hope that they they don't go under completely and find their feet at a level that's sustainable for them but um, but yeah I think you know there's got to be a lot of consideration into kind of the breakdown of where this Barclays money goes across the league you know where, how, how, how they make it uh, make it go in the right places to keep the league competitive because I think professionalism has ever so slightly shifted the gap mm. um, and closed it a little bit because it's it's boosted the lower teams uh, up and in, in, improved their quality massively. Um, so that they, they do have to be a little bit careful about the kind of prize money and the money that goes to clubs um, being too top-heavy. Uh, but then, like I say... For me, the biggest gap is is the one down to the championship and, and what they do about that. And Kelly Simmons did say that um, championship sponsor, uh, a championship sponsor, and a, a national league sponsor were kind of on on the to do list as, as kind of mm-hmm. immediate priorities. Um, and hopefully, they can get big enough deals that mean they can um, they can properly invest in the same way that the top clubs are. And uh, you, you kind of you mentioned there um, some of the. Some of the big crowds we've seen over the last kind of week or so, 60,000 at Atleti v Barca, Juve v Fiorentina drew 39,000 at the Allianz, um, particularly, I think, uh, significant this was during an international break um, in the men's. Um, I, I was at the Liverpool-Arsenal game on Sunday at Prenton Park, and I've always thought a really good barometer for how well WSL games are promoted as the taxi drivers when you get a taxi from the station to the ground and, and they say, oh, um, is there a game there today? Um, and that happened to me on Sunday uh, when I got a taxi to Prenton Park. And, you know, you had Liverpool versus Arsenal on a day where there's no men's football during the international break. Liverpool even offered um, free tickets to people who'd been to the Liverpool Legends game the day before. The games on BT, 506 um, was the attendance. What do you think um, the WSL can learn from the attendances we saw in Spain and Italy in, in the kind of same time period? You're completely right about the, the taxi drivers. I, I always do the same. I always, you know, you always ask me where I'm going. I always tell them. When I was up at Chelsea Durham, 
the cab driver from the station had no clue when I was at the She Believes Cup in the US. The cab drivers to both stadiums in Tampa and Nashville that I was at didn't have a clue those games were going on. And they they, they had 20 plus thousands uh, at the US games uh, as, as the later games. Um, so it, it is a good test uh, of, uh, of kind of just how, how far these these games be marketed, and for me, that's that's the thing is is they send out the, you know the tweets about the free tickets and things like that, but that's not enough. Um, and just kind of um, I don't know, I, I, I kind of feel like market marketing departments don't know just just don't know how to get people into grounds. They don't know how to uh, how to like physically get people to go from one place to the other if it's not something that they're kind of already really, really tied to doing. Mm. Um, I think that, like, too many people come out of uh, out of uni with marketing degrees um, that show them how to run great social media campaigns or work for big brands that automatically you know, pull people. So, you know, if you've got someone working for Nike, it's not going to be hard to, to get someone to buy a new trainer. But if you've got something that you're, you're, you're kind of... It, that is new, that people are a little bit sceptical of, um, and, uh, and, you know, already kind of have a busy schedule with a very similar uh, product uh, around them, then that's a, a much, much harder thing to crack. And I think there, there's a little kind of a little kind of switch that needs to be made from this kind of marketing mindset and us just kind of having posters up and doing these promotions that you only see if you already know about the game. Um, mm-hmm. And getting in people's faces a little bit more and and I think that's uh, what Juventus and Atletico did uh, very successfully I mean I spoke to someone um, who was at the Atletico game and they said before the match they had uh, the weeks before the match they had buses going around the city with the players faces on and the details of the game they had the women players signing shirts and other merch in shops um, people queuing up for them uh, they unveiled uh, plaques to every Atletico player, men and women, who have uh, over 100 plaques outside the ground. Um, so they, they had a massive, massive push uh, for that game um, in a very kind of physical way. You know, they really made sure that everyone knew that that game was happening. And then once the momentum started to build, then then it took off. You mentioned that you're up at Prenton Park. I mean, Prenton Park is such a nightmare to get to. Yeah. Fact, you have to get a cab from the station to get there. Yeah. Says it all because, like, you look like it's like a half an hour walk to the nearest uh, nearest stop or something. I think if I, if I remember the last time I did it correctly. Um, and, and, and that's just just not really good enough. I mean, you know, you're in an international break. Why not stick that game at Anfield after the Legends game? You know, or before mm. it, or the day after it, and then offer the free tickets. Uh, everyone is in the ground uh, you know to go you've got to you've got to go to where they are and they're sitting in Anfield uh, you know and want and that's where they want to be uh, so go to them take the product to them show them how good it is and then maybe they'll travel to to one a bit further away but that's I think such a big deal is that so many teams in England play so far away from their kind of main club stadiums um, and, and that's just a means that they're not visible, and B, B makes it that pe- well. Essentially, people have to give up their entire weekends to football as well, uh, because you know you're going to spend ages travelling over to Prenton Park uh, on one day, and then the Anfield or away for, for Liverpool uh, men on the other day. Um, you, you can't expect people to do that every week, uh, so you, you've really got to kind of incentivise it and make you've got to make them want it. You've got to make them believe. You've got to make them. Feel, feel hungry for 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 that that atmosphere and that uh, and that that product that you've been investing in so heavily because yeah I mean otherwise just what is the point why why are you investing in the in the first place if you're not really going to fight to get to get people to see what you've been what you've been building. Yeah, this this is a phrase um, I kind of repeat time and again. So, uh, for example, like Arsenal launched um, a new app um, last week, and none of the women's players featured in any of the advertising. The the information on the women's team in it is um, is quite paltry, um, to be honest. And I always just think to myself, 
look, you're paying for your women's team, and you know Arsenal. They don't, you know, listen. They don't lose a lot of money on it, but they do lose money on their women's team. And you think you've got a product that, all right, it's a drop in the ocean to you, but you're actually losing money on. Sell it. You know, th- this is like a really good opportunity for completely free publicity. And I, I, I think sometimes it's it's not a deliberate thing. It just it perhaps doesn't quite enter. You know, it doesn't quite enter people's minds to do it. Yeah, I just think that it, there's just a complete, a complete like lack of um, joined up thinking. Mm. Uh, you know, like in a lot of clubs, the the team that once runs the women's uh, the women's team is really really separate from the men's team, and it's where you get joined up thinking that they're a little bit more successful. I think Man City are probably best at doing that here in terms of the visibility of their team, the fact that they've got the Academy Stadium so close to the Etihad and little things like that. Um, yeah, they still, I mean, they still struggle to get the turnouts at the Academy Stadium as well. And I think that, again, is this too, like, like I say, slick marketing that you only find if you look for it. And that, like you say, the Arsenal app, you're only going to find the women's stuff if you go hunting for it. It's not in your face. And I... I, I did uh, eight months working at the BBC and I did some shifts which were running the, um, the sport home page. And one of the, the things that we were kind of chatting about um, was like what you promote on the front page of a website. Mm-hmm. And like if you promote on the front page of a website the uh, preview for Manchester United Arsenal or you've got something like uh, a match report from a Chelsea City women's game. What do you put higher up now? Or what do you put on the homepage at all? Now, like, if you have, if you don't have the Arsenal Man United preview there, people are going to find it because they know, they know, they'll know what they're looking for. They'll go to the football tab, they'll find it there. Mm. Or they'll go to their club, they've got their club saved uh, as their kind of, like, whatever main link that they want and they'll, they'll get to it that way. And you want to put the stuff that people aren't necessarily going to think of to find higher up. You know, you want to put the stuff that that isn't, you know, isn't going to get automatic clicks regardless, regardless of where it goes. And I think that there's a little bit of a hesitancy to do that and to, uh, to take the plunge and throw, throw some of your content higher up uh, because you, you feel like it's going to risk the, the men's content. People want the men's content, they're going to find it as that's just not an issue um, but you've, you've got to show them that, that you're you're putting all this money into this other section, section of your business that is being hugely successful the idea that Arsenal aren't championing uh, on their on their app the, the biggest uh, the, well I think the biggest the big, well the biggest women's club in, in uh, English football history and, uh, and also uh, a team that is on the cusp of winning the league for the first time in six, seven years, uh, is crazy. You know, it's the most exciting team to watch this season. Um, And I just think everything lacks excitement. Everything is too slick corporate and um, and kind of driven by the figures and not uh, not enough people are just really, really excited about what 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 is on offer and and as a result, kind of being inventive and creative about the ways in which you push them. And and uh, kind of building on that as well, one, one, I know one of the most common questions I'm asked about Arsenal women is why they don't play at the Emirates more often. Um, I, you know, I, I think the club argue, and I, I have to have some sympathy with this argument. Um, they say they've done it in the past and they draw about four or 5,000 people, which is good but it's still quite low and basically for that level of crowd, the effort and the expenditure is is quite arduous on them. There's an argument that some players don't like playing in uh, big grounds with a small semi-engaged crowd and obviously in competitive terms in the league, you know, Arsenal going for the league title, you're effectively surrendering home advantage for a game. Um, now, I I know from having spoken to you with you about this a few times that you disagree with all of that. So I'm going to ask you to set out for our listeners why you disagree with that. Well, I mean, I, I understand all those all those all those arguments, and you know, I think that there is uh, like legitimacy to them. But 
for me, there's uh, there, there's so many positives to not every game at the main stadium. You know, I'm not kind of crazy. It's, it's too soon for, uh, for for that kind of level of commitment from a club. But to commit to you know kind of one or two games a season, I think uh, you know is realistic and mm. part one of you know one of those barriers, as you say, is giving up the home advantage. Like at some point, you've got to overcome that and. If you're playing one or two games a season there, and if you, maybe if you train there a couple of times or whatever, then you start making that your home as well. You know, there's no reason why why it can't very quickly become uh, a home ground. But also, I mean, even if you get four or five thousand in the Emirates, that's so much more than they're getting up at Bournemouth Wood at the moment. You know, mm. less than a thousand most weeks. Um, and if if you're starting to build that audience, even if it's quite small. I'd say I'd say it's worth it. Um, that said, at the stage we're in and the kind of the way things are looking, you know, across Europe, I don't see why there there isn't a chance they could fill at least one tier of a big ground. Um, but like, but it has to be done right. It has to be uh, thought through. Maybe a back to back with the men's game or on a weekend mm. when the men are playing away, um, and then just really go for it hell for leather, like enough notice that not having it last minute for one um, you know having it months in advance pick a fixture say that it's going to be Arsenal Man City or it's going to be Arsenal Chelsea um, and and then go hell for leather to, to kind of get it in public knowledge that this is happening use the games in Spain and Juve you know say look they've done it now we want to do it here um, and we want to be the first to fill us. we want to be the first the first women's team to fill a men's stadium, uh, one of the big Premier League stadiums in England, like play on the rivalries because that's essentially what what they're doing in the, in like uh, the Basque Country and Galicia and all those kind of areas. You know, they're playing on re- regionality um, and kind of competitiveness, and uh, and we can do that. We've got some of the biggest rivalries in football. Like, do Arsenal want to fill uh, the Emirates for a women's game before Spurs fill? New White Hart Lane for a women's game, yeah, hundred percent they do. So, like, let's think of the ways that that, that we can kind of uh, get people along. You know, not just going into schools and giving out a few tickets to the kids, but talking to the parents and saying, "Look, your whole family can have tickets for this, either dirt cheap or free." Um, because you know, if a kid takes a ticket home to their parents, that's no good uh, because. It's not engaging. It's not. It's not sending it to to the parent. Um, little things like that. You've got to. You've got to do more than just a few posters, some adverts in the paper, some signs on the tube, uh, maybe a notice low down on the website. Um, and I think that we kind of put too much stock in looking at the previous uh, the previous figures at big grounds because if you don't build it, then it's inevitable that you're going to get low figures and if you don't kind of like look at it in the right way then then that's what happens and like if if you didn't advertise a men's game and you just you just scheduled it kind of a week two weeks before um and you know kind of didn't advertise it at all bar a few posters you would get a smaller turnout um mm-hmm. now like it, it's, it's it's just uh, yeah i think there's, there's two two too much fear and hesitancy and we don't like lose anything anything by giving it a go yeah. um that's that's the thing is like i'm, I'm not saying we, we play week in week out but i'm saying we just we give it a go and we we like take inspiration from those we go you know send someone from from Arsenal over to portland where they get twenty thousand every week and uh and find out how they do it and what like kind of what incentives they give and how, like, what, how they market it how they get kids from schools and clubs and things, um, how they get people from the men's team into the girls, all of that. Like, why not kind of study what they're doing, study the differences in kind of culture and stuff as well, so that you know you don't necessarily kind of get affected by the differences there. But yeah, like, there's nothing to lose. A bit of home advantage, maybe, and playing to a slightly empty stadium. I mean. At the moment, Arsenal playing to a virtually empty stadium most weeks at Boreham Wood. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's not... Like, I mean, obviously, 500 in a, like, three 4,000-seat stadium is different to 
5,000 and 60,000 seat stadium, but it's got to start somewhere. And the kind of, it feels like the timing is really, really right. If people are kind of just really, really willing to go all out and really invest in not just the team, but the marketing of the team and the odd game as well. And, um, and you know, just to, to kind of add to that, you mentioned Spurs. What what an opportunity they missed, I think. Their women's team was playing on the same day that they opened White Hart Lane. You know, they're top of the league going for promotion and uh, and they kept that at Cheshire and, and um, played their under-18s um, at White Hart Lane instead. And, and an academy team doesn't really need any promotion because it, it generates its own revenue anyway. Um, lastly, I, I wanted to... Um, touch on an article uh, your Guardian colleague and very much a friend of this site Amy Lawrence wrote um, this week about um, something Arsenal are doing where some of the players from the girls under 12 team are training with the boys um, which is something that um, Per Mertesacker has brought in this year in his role in the academy Um, the reason I ask you this question is because you interviewed Vivian Miedema recently for the Guardian and um, she touched on in that interview, she touched on the experience of training with boys when she was younger and uh, how she felt that that really helped her development. Could you um, maybe just expand on what she told you and why this might be an interesting direction that Arsenal are taking? Yes, it's, I mean, it's brilliant because um, she's not the first player to say it to me. A few, a few, um, a few of the players have, but they, they play the boys as long as humanly possible. Uh, because it kind of it, it stretched them most, and that's not to say that boys are better than girls, but it's the the kind of the state of development of the two two games uh, of the yeah, the women's and the men's game means that um, that boys football, which you know has huge investment, and kids are picked up from very very early age and are, are trained with you know top professional coaches from a very early age. Uh, means that it, it's, it's a more competitive environment with uh, with kind of a higher standard at an earlier age to, to girls. But on top of that, the fact that there are obviously significantly more boys playing, so that the best of the boys are going to be the, the kind of most the most competitive level, whereas the best of the girls, you know, taken from a smaller pool, so they're not they're not going to be as good. So taking the very best girls and putting them into uh, into that environment is um, it is is a like a really a really really good step uh, in their development. Obviously, you don't want to you can't you, you have to be careful because you don't want to then have the best players removed from girls football entirely, and that's got to be a consideration sort of a little bit further down the line. But I think mm. that's that's part that that will be kind of when girls football is, is, is caught up to a level that, that means that, uh, that it, it challenges the very, very best girls players uh, more. Um, at the moment, that's not the case. So the, the idea of taking advantage of, uh, of, um, uh, of, your boys, of your boys' academies helping train your, your very best girls uh, is a really, really brilliant one. And, and not only brilliant for the development of girls football, but also... For, um, for, the, for the boys too like just you know showing them the, the kind of standard that all the the boys reaching um, for just how they interact with women and, uh, and, and the benefits of, of kind of having girls in that environment with them um, I think can only be a good thing Yeah I, I completely agree I, I think it's a great step I've, I've read quite a bit about this in recent years and uh and uh, it's it's great to have that kind of um, fresh thinking from from someone like Per Mertesacker as well. Um, Susie, I've I've taken quite enough of your time, so um, thank you so much for for your time and for your insights on this. And uh, yeah, we we really look forward to welcoming you back on the show, perhaps sometime in the near future. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's fun. Thanks, Susie. Cheers. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. That was the Guardian's women's football correspondent, Susie Rack, talking to Tim. Tim, very interesting. The... The fact that there is such a high-profile sponsor as Barclays on board now. Barclays, of course, were the Premier League sponsors for many years, and they're now sponsoring the Women's uh, League. It really does give it a huge boost in terms of profile and what it might mean for the clubs, and perhaps as well, you know, to create a an equalization to some extent in terms of uh, competitiveness in the league where teams have got more money, they can spend more money on players and make their teams better. It can only be a good thing for, for women's football. Yeah, absolutely. And um, frankly, it might um, benefit the, the bigger teams slightly more, but uh, it, it will be realized across the league. And, you know, the FA had this initiative to where the league was fully professionalized this year. And something like this sponsorship and having prize money for the first time really helps the teams n- nearer the bottom who yeah. kind of struggle to make ends meet. This kind of thing now just helps to sustain that and hopefully what it does i mean barclays kind of came in on the back of visa who signed a deal to sponsor all uefa women's competitions earlier this year and so it just feels like there's a little bit of momentum behind this now and shortly the tv deals with the bbc and bt sport will be renegotiated and hopefully those can kind of go up and Mm. and there's a world cup this summer and it it feels like there's there's definitely like a commercial momentum um, to get behind football, particularly, you know, in the era of like football leaks and, you know, are Manchester City just outright cheating? Mm-hmm. And, yeah, yeah. you know, are all the big clubs <laughs> who are just funded by, you know, states and all of that? Women's football's got like... Um, a, a, a slightly kind of it's, it's got a bit of a cleaner image as well and I think some of these big brands are coming around to that so yeah I, it, it's it's a real game changer we, we use that word you know in the interview but, but yeah. it really really is it's a watershed moment Okay, and just in terms of the 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 attendances we've seen at the games the Atleti Barca game and Juventus and so many people interested in attending women's football I mean, can Arsenal do more? Do they have plans to do more? We've got a 60,000-seater stadium in the middle of London where perhaps if you incentivize people to come along uh, with Mm. cheap tickets or or subsidized tickets in some way, that it would really help the the women's team and also the women's game. Yeah, I I think Arsenal will do this again soon. They did, um, you know, when the... FAWSL first started in 2011. They used to do a game a season at the Emirates, but the, you know the crowds were like 4,000 or so, which is better than they get at Boreham Wood. But um, it, it it wasn't really enough to justify. But um, I think that these uh, these crowds we've seen at Atleti and Juve, I I think a lot of teams will start will start looking at this again now. Um, mm. And I. I it won't happen this season, but I wouldn't be surprised if early next season Arsenal try to do something like that. Not least because um, it looks like Manchester United women will certainly be promoted. Um, Tottenham women uh, are actually, their women's team is near the top of the championship as well. They've got a shot at promotion. So actually what you're getting is the women's league is starting to look a bit more like the Premier League. Yeah. And, um, you know, we were talking earlier in the podcast about teams like Birmingham and Reading being really good. But you're getting like, you know, Arsenal, Man City, Chelsea at the top. Man United are going to come into that conversation fairly soon. You know, I think Tottenham will go up fairly soon. And, you know, you're starting to get all of these rivalries from the men's game. And and, and that's effectively what happened over the last couple of weeks, like Atleti versus Barca. You know that's that's a big ticket fixture in the men's game, and and they kind of really drove 
that interest um, into the into the women's fixture. And they did it at a really good time as well during the international break when there's no other football. And I, I think that that will cause, you know, some some of some of these some of these bigger teams to kind of revisit this and and look at look at doing something similar. Hasn't that been a little bit of a problem? I think. Am I right in thinking that some of the games towards the end of the season have been rescheduled to to not conflict with what's going on in the Premier League? A a, a bit, yeah. So. Um, what what they did was really sensibly and lord knows why it took so long but originally for months and months the last day of the WSL season was set as the last day of the Premier League season and um and I I emailed um the, the FA's kind of uh WSL comms guy um, about this and I was like you know it's getting into February because I I fully expected that to change and it got into like late February and I I, I sent an email I was like are you seriously going to do this like there might be a literal title decided between Arsenal and Manchester City and you're going to put that up against the Premier League not least when every single WSL ground is available on the Saturday um, and they have done it. I'm not going to say it's because of my email um, per se, but <laughs> they they have now moved it. I, I, I do have some sympathy in terms of they can't always avoid men's games. It's impossible because when when is like when is the Premier League and men's football not happening other than during international breaks? It's it's impossible, um, frankly. And yeah. they've all got ground shares with with like football league clubs and men's clubs. So it's just too difficult. But for a big ticket game like that, I, I can't believe they even contemplated putting it on the same day as the Premier League, or the, as the final day of the Premier League. Well, some common sense uh, at last. Um, let's talk a little bit about injuries. And, you know, mm. if, you're, if you're an Arsenal fan, you're listening to this, you will be, uh, I guess, somewhat inured to the idea of your team being <laughs> hassled or hampered by, by injury. And certainly the Arsenal women this season have had plenty to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. There, there have been times when there's only been three substitutes named and, you know, two of them are from the youth team and one of them's the goalkeeper. I mean, and they're all knee injuries um, as well. And, you know, we can do a whole other podcast some other time about why women's footballers get get knee injuries disproportionately. But, I, you know, we took a bit of a gamble with a small squad this year and we've been a little bit unlucky with some injuries uh, to be a chemair. Um, we agreed to sign her last February. I believe that deal was done, wasn't announced till about June, but they did the deal in February. In March, she tears her meniscus in her knee. Mm. Uh, Vicky Schneiderbeck, we signed her from Bayern Munich five days before the season started. Pre-season friendly, tears the cartilage in her knee. Um, and then you've got Jordan Nobbs, how does her cruciate ligament in November. Um, Jess Samuelson, um, who left the club and that was announced this week actually her her last ever game was against Liverpool um, on Sunday and, and it's really sad what happened with Jess you know because she was signed she'd been in Sweden her home country most of her career and she signed to replace Alex Scott and she plays three games here goes away with her country um, the goalkeeper falls on top of her and it was it's sickening the foot injury she got so the goalkeeper landed on her one of her metatarsals broke so badly that it crashed into the metatarsal next to it and broke that as well. Oh. They crossed. Yikes. And yeah, and all of the ligaments underneath it were torn as well. So an appalling foot injury, which kept her out for nearly a year. Was the goalkeeper Neville Southall? <laughs> no, it was actually Chelsea's goalkeeper, right. um, also Sweden's goalkeeper. And they were winning 6-0 at the time or something. Oh. It was a free kick came in and the goalkeeper came over the top of her to catch it and landed on her and her foot just buckled underneath her and it was appalling injury. And then she came back and like four games later broke her foot again. Um, and she's, she's only just come back to fitness, but she's mm. decided... 
she's decided to leave to go back to Sweden because there's a World Cup this summer and she hasn't played any international football for nearly 18 months and she's not going to get into the Arsenal team at this stage as, as anything other than a sub so she's decided to go home and play some football for the next two months uh, right. hopefully stay fit and, and get back into the Sweden squad but you know that that's that's been a bit of a tragedy and, and then we've got Leo Valti has been out for the last eight weeks with a knee injury and she's for me, up there with Vivian Miedema um, as player of the season, been fantastic in that midfield. Emma Mitchell hasn't the left back hasn't really been right for the last few months. She had ankle surgery before Christmas, came back and something's not right again, and it's, it's gone very quiet there. Um, wow! I mean, then, when you when you put all that out there, it's an yeah. amazing testament to uh, the coach and the players that they are top of the table and they have the title yep. in their hands. Absolutely. Cause they honestly, they've been down to 12 to 14 players and you know, two of those are goalkeepers for most of the season. So wow. um, they, they definitely need to beef the squad up next year. Cause they're going to be in the champions league. Um, and, and they know that, but, um, but yeah, and then, the, you know, there's been, but there's, there's been some good news. You know, we've Vicky Schneider back, Beck is back. Um, Tabia Kemer should be back on the bench on Sunday, and Dan Carter um, has, has 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 come on as a sub in the last two games. She did her ACL um, last May, and we'll, we'll just drop a little bit of the audio from the interview um, I did with her, um, talking about I I asked her perhaps foolishly which was the hardest part of um, recovery, and and well, this was her answer. Honestly, there's so many, it's so long. Um, there's so many different hard parts. There's no hardest part. There's a hard part straight after surgery. There's a hard part while you're in the gym for so long. There's a hard part when you're first on the treadmill. There's always a hard part. There's no hardest part. Um, obviously, the biggest thing is the psychological thing. It's getting your head around things. So that's accepting it. And then putting the work in. And then eventually when you do finish the rehab, it's, it's the psychological part of getting back to how you normally play and like, doing your normal things. And your feet do what your brain's trying to <laughs> tell it to do. So, yeah, the whole thing's hard. There's, honestly, there's, there's no... There's no handbook for how to overcome it. It's, it's, it's a really hard And if people want to find out more from Dan Carter, they can read the interview. The full interview, of course, is on Arsbog News. Uh, you can find it in the Arsenal women's section. I mean, for any professional footballer, for any footballer, to go through an injury of that seriousness is traumatic and difficult. Mm. You know, your sense of what, what's happening with her and whether it's maybe this season might be just a little bit too soon or, or how is she feeling about it? She, yeah, she's she's feeling good. She's like all her timescales have uh, have been uh, exactly right. They, they always felt it'd be you know, nine, 10 months. And that's, that's exactly what it's been. And she's just super focused on helping Arsenal to win the league. And I think she realizes she might not get to start a game this season, but what she'll get is she'll get another kind of four games off the bench. And then, mm. you know, she's, she's not going to get in the England world cup squad now. So she'll have a good preseason and hopefully start next season. We'll really see her back. But it, it was, uh, you know, it's, it's always really fascinating, um, interviewing any of these players when they've been through something like this because you know none, none of them talk really about the pain or anything like that and that's one of the thing that things I think about the most I've you know I've picked up some injuries playing football but I haven't like torn a cruciate ligament or anything and it looks agonizing but none of them reference that wow. and Dan was you know talking exclusively about the psychological part and she was saying look my rehab is not done just because I'm back in the squad she's like I've still got a way to go um you know a little bit physically but she said mainly mentally like learning to trust your knee again um is is such a big part of it and she realizes that's that's not going to happen for a while um quite frankly and 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 one of the things um I I really want or I want to help the players put across doing these interviews is I it is kind of different, I think, for women's footballers because, and it's difficult to explain because just because of the money at the top level of the men's game, um, I'm not saying that insulates them from the psychological impact of injury and the boredom. And I, I think people will have seen that Lauren Koscielny documentary that Arsenal did that was brilliant. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that got me most in that documentary is where. Uh, Gary O. Um, Driscoll talks about how, like, the player's muscle wastes away because they have to rest. And, you know, if you're a professional athlete and you're mm. used to having, like, you know, 
rock hard carbs and thighs and then you spend like a month in bed after surgery and you get up and it's all gone and you've got to build that up again that's that's tremendously tough but I think the thing is with women's footballers it's for want of a, a better phrase their their lives are more don't want to use the word normal, but no, they're much but regular. Yeah, yeah. There is this, an element of footballers when you're earning a ridiculous amount of money, sort of living in a bubble. And it doesn't mean that the yeah. guys that we have are are immune to, or you know, they ignore what's going on in the real world. But yeah, I, I get what you're saying. It's it's yeah. more it's more prosaic, I guess, when it comes to 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 the women's footballers. It is. And uh, one, one of the questions, because Dan has a degree in physiotherapy, and I asked her about that. I said, like, were you curious at all, like, as a student? She was like, no, not at all. She was <laughs> just, when it, she was like, not at all, not at all. And, and, and this is the thing I tried to get across, I suppose, in the feature interviews is like, um, that they live much more normal lives. Like, I, uh, to go off on a slight tangent, I spoke to Lisa Evans in February and spoke to her about um, she moved to Germany when she was 19 to go and play. And she played in Germany for a bit, played for Bayern Munich. And, you know, when she got the offer, she was 19. She was living at home. Uh, um, she was at university, surrounded by her friends and family. And she gets this offer to go and play football in Germany. And she has to weigh up all of that. And so she left her friends, left her family, left her degree and, you know, we're in an era now where Arsenal women's players, i.e. the very elite level, they are making a living out of it. Still, most women's footballers don't, but at that level they do. But not so much that that when they're 35, they don't have to go and get another job. So yeah. for someone like Lisa to quit university to go and play football in Germany and then... Um, you know, one of the, the really fascinating things about the interview, she talks about learning German and her determination to become fluent in German. And she just kind of said, look, I gave up everything for this move. So it had to work. Like yeah. I, it, there was there was no option for it to fail. And again, meant that's not to say men's footballers at the top level are immune to, you know, the culture shock of moving to a new country and learning a new language and things like that. But she was saying... I gave up everything for this. I couldn't just come home after a year with my tail between my legs. I had to make it work. And and the, I, I really hope that comes through in the pieces that, that they, you know, they live lives that are much more akin to you or I. And that that, I think, does make things different, even if that's not to say that it makes things easy for, for top-level male footballers. Sure. I mean, we have seen over the last few years, a big improvement. I mean, I say this with, with Hector Bellerin out with a cruciate knee, knee ligament injury, Rob Holding out with a cruciate knee ligament injury. Big improvements in terms of the amount of injuries that we sustain. You know, the big ones, I'm not sure you can really legislate for them. So is is there any kind of crossover between the uh, the fitness teams, the strength and conditioning coaches and all those kind of things that have been significant in improving the fitness record for the men's team uh, is there any kind of crossover between the two between the two sides so there's there's a bit so the women have their own staff they have their their own kind of medical and physiotherapy staff but all of that staff yeah they talk to each other and i and i'm certain that the arsenal women's physios go to gary o'driscoll and say look i've got this that and the mm. other like i I, I, I don't know for sure, but I, I think given the way that, you know, when I visited the training ground last summer and, and Darren Burgess gave that kind of presentation, like they all talk to each other. So there's a sense of coalescence between them, but the women have their own staff. They have some of their own facilities as well. But what they do use is uh, the women use the gym, which is the same as the men's. Now, the crossover is fairly limited because they train at slightly different times of the day, but not entirely. Um, and actually, one of the things that Dan talked to me about in the interview was um, was uh, uh, Petr Cech, who... Um, who who takes a, a really keen and genuine interest in the women's team. And people will have seen the story about um, him taking them out for dinner like a few weeks ago to congratulate them on their on their great season and everything. But she said Petr Cech advised uh, Dan to, to keep a diary during her recovery. Mm. And um, it's, it's something apparently he did when he was recovering from that skull fracture. And uh, he, he said to her with... Uh, because you get good days and bad days, you know, in recovery. And he said, at the end of every entry, just put a smiley face or a sad face just <laughs> to show how you felt that day. And he said, and then, like, at the end of every month, go back and look. Because 
you know, what you'll see is there are three or four bad days, but the rest are not. But it's very easy, you know, in the human psyche for three or four bad days to feel like to feel like a lot more than that. And so it was just it's just a, a little tip he gave her to stop like the darkness taking hold, as it were, and saying, look, you might have had three bad days this month, but you had 27 good ones. And and so that by using like the same facility there, there is a bit of crossover. But on the medical side, Arsenal women have their own staff. Most of them are contractors. Um, so they kind of stay for a season and, and go and there's a little bit of, you know, they work as a, as, as a bit of a team, but it's not, um, it, it's not completely kind of, um, interconnected. Hmm. Be interesting to see if that changes, uh, in the near yeah. future. And I, I think that's great from Petacek because it is one of those things. The good days or what you might consider a good day could just be a normal day and you don't remember yep. it simply because of that fact. And then when you have a bad day, it sticks in the memory because, A, it's probably rare or rarer than yep. you might think. So, uh, well, hopefully uh, all goes well for her. We're going to leave it there more or less, but you want to tease next month's podcast. You've got something coming up yeah. which people are going to dig. Yeah, yeah. So um, on April the 29th, we'll release um, a little audio documentary and all things being equal, Arsenal could win the league on April the 28th. So it might be a day of celebration. But um, nevertheless, the 29th of April is um, a historically hugely important date um, for Arsenal women slash ladies. Um, I'll let people Google that if they're not sure. Um, And yeah, I, I speak to a couple of the word legend is overused, but I speak to a couple of absolutely bona fide um, Arsenal ladies legends um, about something that happened on the 29th of April some years ago. Okay, well, look, that's coming up in next month. Hopefully people who've listened to this one have enjoyed it. Thank you for being here. Remember, we've got lots of podcasts across the site and on Patreon as well. Lots of extra content for there if you'd like to subscribe. For now, though, we'll leave it there. Uh, Tim, thanks very much. My pleasure. being a little extra can be a bit much but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra and united healthcare makes it easy with health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company they supplement your primary plan helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods so when it comes to covering your medical bills you can feel good about being a little extra visit uh1.com to find the health protector guard plan for you